Good evening, everybody. So let's cultivate our motivation. So although our minds are quite full of wrong views and other afflictions, when we think about it, it's kind of amazing that we not only encountered the Buddhist teachings, but that we have confidence in them, and that our confidence in them is based on understanding them. And considering how strong our wrong views can be, shifting those views so that we can understand what the Buddha is saying already took some effort and is probably a continuation of ways in which we've changed our views in previous lives. And that depends on merit, on purification, on listening to teachings, and on applying reasoning so that we can understand the teachings and form a correct understanding and correct views. So we've been actually quite fortunate in that way because there's lots of people who are very talented on the planet, very intelligent, and yet when it comes to understanding the Dharma, they don't get it. So we can see that Dharma intelligence depends not just on IQ, or maybe it doesn't depend on IQ at all. Seems to depend on open-mindedness, purification, accumulation of merit, and the willingness to examine things. So let's make a strong determination to continue to uh, practice in that way and create those causes. And continue to test out what we believe to see if it makes sense, revise it as necessary. And then use that perfected intelligence, that clear intelligence, combined with compassion to attain full awakening and then to be of great benefit to living beings.
true, isn't it? You meet some people who are brilliant in certain fields, and you try and explain the Dharma, and they go, huh? They, they, it just doesn't go in, doesn't click. And then you meet other people who don't have so much formal education, and they understand the Dharma right away. Interesting, isn't it? In fact, sometimes our our formal education can get in the way of understanding the Dharma because we're taught certain things from when we're this big and uh, they get implanted deeply in our mind and then we can't consider anything else. Okay, so there's uh, several questions remaining from last week. Um, one thing, the at the end of last week we were uh, talking about how hard, uh, how difficult it is to remove the wrong views um, even though they are just acquired wrong views, things that we learned in this life, okay? So in one way we look at it and it's like, Oh, well, you know, attachment we can subdue. That's easier than wrong views because wrong views, we cling onto them stubbornly. But actually, wrong views, we have only that acquired level, what we learned in this lifetime for attachment, anger, arrogance, those ones. Uh, those have not only acquired forms, what we learned in this lifetime, but innate forms you know, so that those afflictions came with, have come with us since beginningless time from one way rebirth to the next. So those ones are actually harder to remove than just the acquired ones. Yeah, the acquired ones are, are eliminated on the path of seeing. The innate ones, uh, if you're practicing the bodhisattva path, aren't eliminated until the eighth ground. So there's quite a bit more practice to go. Okay. So other questions. Do we purify our mind the moment we do the Buddhist purification practice? Or is it a sort of mind training that leads to eventual purification and positive change with consistent effort? I think it's more the latter. Every time we do purification, we are chipping away at, uh, you know, the the seeds of non-virtue in in our mind. And uh, it's not like you do purification one day and then the next day you see this amazing change in your mind and you never have that problem again. No, it's, you know... We have lots and lots of seeds of similar kinds of non-virtue, and we have to continually uh, and consistently purify, okay? And then over time, we begin to see a change in ourselves. And while in the scriptures, they talk about changes like you dream that you're touching the sun and moon or... Uh, you know, you dream that you're meeting the Buddha. Uh, 
<laughs> those are nice experiences, but I think a more practical way how we, we can tell that we've purified is when we hear the same teaching that we've heard before, but we understand it better. Yeah, at least that was my experience after doing a three-month Vajrasattva retreat. It's like, oh, you know, <laughs> is this what they've been talking about? And then, you know, 20 years later, reading a transcript from, you know, one of the courses I took early on, and what I'm reading has a whole different meaning to me than it did at that time. Yeah, so that's indicative of some kind of change in the mind, some kind of purification. So don't expect, you know, whammo, bango, all that bad habit is completely canceled and now I'm free of it and, and it doesn't happen like that. Okay, can we classify view of extremes as part of wrong views? Well, view of extremes in one way, okay, so it, the Prasangika version of it, it takes the inherently existent I and then either says it continues on to uh, the next life or it ceases completely. And um, the, the wrong views can be, they're, they're, it's emphasizing that they're more denying the existence of something that exists. Uh, but they also posit the existence of something that doesn't exist. So to the extent that, um, ext that uh, extreme views posits a, uh, a soul or a self that goes from an inherently existent one that goes from life to life, may, to that extent maybe it could be considered a wrong view. Yeah. I mean, these ones, it's how, how they're broken up into different things is... I don't know that it's like clean, clear lines between them. Uh, and actually, the main purpose is to notice them in our mind and then to challenge their veracity. Yeah, don't get too hung up on, uh, you know, trying to figure out which one they are because whichever one they, it is, it has to be uh, overcome. <laughs> okay. Is afflicted intelligence the same as corrupted intelligence? They seem slightly different. Now, is the term afflicted intelligence used in here? We're talking about afflictive views, but we're saying that they are corrupt intelligence. Okay. No? What? It's, it's not in there. Okay. Now, in general, the word afflicted, and uh, like what, because we do talk about afflictive views, yeah, and uh, that there usually the word for afflicted is klesa, and when we talked about corrupt intelligence, the word the Sanskrit word for corrupt there is also klesa, so that would be the same, just different translations of the word, but I don't think. We, we use the term, what? Twice in the book there's afflictive intelligence but not afflicted intelligence. Yeah, yeah. actually, um, there's, it's 
always supposed to believe it. The adjective is afflictive, not afflicted. Afflicted sounds like it would be the adjective, but when you look in the dictionary, it says afflictive. Yeah. But um, is this a come in this section when we're talking about it? On page 160, so a bit further ahead, it says 160. Yes. That's quite a bit ahead of where we are. Yeah, page 160 and then uh, page 93 as well. Okay, 90. But both ahead of where we are. Okay, 93 we will come to today. 160, maybe I'll look at it later. But it, you know, it's the same. Different translations. Okay, for other Buddhist traditions who view purification practice as non-critical, would it be classified as a wrong view? How can we overcome that wrong view? I don't know any Buddhist tradition that doesn't talk about purification. It may not talk about doing 100,000 prostrations and vajrasattva, okay, but all of them talk about confessing misdeeds yeah, and making amends for misdeeds. That's in all the Buddhist traditions, at least the ones that, that where I've done some reading and know something about them. Okay. So some traditions emphasize it a lot. I mean, the Tibetans make a, a big thing about it. You do a hundred thousand and this and that. But that apparently came from um, Marpa, and he started that tradition. So it's not something, the 100,000 thing isn't coming from the Buddha himself, but definitely, you know, admitting our mistakes. All the traditions that have monastics, you know, we do our posada, it's a purification ceremony. Okay. What would be the best way? Um, is it having constant awareness and mindfulness to quickly correct any wrong views that might arise at any moment before they manifest into negative speech or action? Okay, so yes, it's having mindfulness of, you know, what is correct and introspective awareness that monitors our mind to see if wrong views come in it. Yeah, and the only way to develop those is by consistent practice. There's no pill you can take. There's no shortcut. We just have to keep, you know, anchoring our mind to what is virtuous again and again, and then using that mental factor of, um, of um, discrimination. No, uh, <laughs> of. Uh, yeah, introspective awareness. Sometimes it's called vigilance, you know, or introspective alertness. They're all translations for that same, same one. Some in the Pali, they often translate it as clear comprehension or clear knowing. So many different translations for that. But um, no, I'm sorry. No, I'm just thinking maybe I've confused it with another mental factor, but we'll see. I'll be able to tell that differently. A little later on. So, um, but in any case, no, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, the, the Pali Sanskrit terms the same. So, uh, yeah, the, the way to do it is you keep practicing it. 
You know, it's like if somebody says, uh, how can you learn to, to play uh, Tchaikovsky's this and that? Well, what's the answer? Practice. You got to learn the instrument and then you got to practice. So it's kind of that way with most things in our life. We can't hire anybody else to do it for us. You know, we can't hire anybody to eat for us, to sleep for us, to quench our thirst for us. Yeah, it would be nice, wouldn't it? Hire somebody to sleep so you didn't have to waste so much time sleeping. But that it doesn't work. So there's some things. There's no other way than to practice it and do it ourselves. Okay. So that's from last week. Any anything else remaining from last week? Okay. Then. Um, Yeah, so last week we were talking about the underlying tendencies. Yeah, and we talked about the fetters, no, the the afflictions, uh, according to the Pali tradition and the underlying uh, tendencies. And then we, before that, had finished up about afflictive views. So now we're going into the auxiliary afflictions, So these here are being presented according to the Sanskrit tradition. And in uh, the Tibetan monasteries, we learn them according to the Sao Tantrika view. Okay? So it's uh, the Prasangikas have their understanding of some of uh, the root afflictions that are a bit different than the Sao Tantrikas and in some cases from the auxiliary ones too. But generally the auxiliary ones are pretty similar in the South Tantrika and Prasangika. It's, it's in the root ones that, that we see more difference. Um, yeah, and so, you know, the question we used to always say, well, why don't we just learn the Prasangika version to start with? You know, it'd be so much easier than you have to learn the South Tantrika. Because also when you learn the, the four truths. We often learn them from the Satantrika viewpoint, and then we have to relearn them from the Prasangika viewpoint. Okay, why can't we just learn them, you know, uh, Prasangika right away? Well, that's because in uh, these teachings came to Tibet uh, from India, and uh, they may have been classified in different traditions in, in India, Somewhat, but especially in Tibet, they they really uh, classified different teachings according to different traditions, and use that as a pedagogical tool. And so, the teachings on mind and awareness, or low rig, uh, were taught from in India, I guess, from the uh, Satantrika view, or the Satantrikas in India, kind of really emphasized that and that spread to Tibet in that way. And so in the monasteries, they taught it in the same way that they learned it. Yeah. And then Prasangikas came, and then that tradition was developed more in Tibet, and they had to go back, and some of the things that were taught 
uh, from the Satantrika view, they had to check, oh, well, if we're prasangikas and we negate inherent existence, is the way this mental factor or that mental factor explained, does that accord with our view or do we have to re, you know, in, do we have to redefine how, uh, you know, a certain mental factor operates? to accord with the prasangikas. So, for example, we see that when we talk about the root affliction of ignorance. Yeah, from the Satantrika viewpoint, it's just like fog in the mind, the obscuration, you can't see things clearly. From the prasangika viewpoint, you are actively grasping things as existing in the opposite way from how they exist. Okay. So something similar with a view of a personal identity. The Satrantrikas say that your object of, your observed object is the aggregates and you are imputing them to be a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. The Prasangikas could never accept that because they say we have to refute an inherently existent person. And they say that the observed object of that view is the nominally existent I. It's not the aggregates. Okay, so things, you know, you they may be taught according to the Satantrikas, and then they got updated by the Prasangikas. Okay, and then you have lots of debates. Well, what about this, and what about that, and and uh, the the debates are to sharpen our intelligence and, and get us to think about these things. Okay, so they don't just tell us the prasangika right away because they say that to really understand the prasangika view, you have to learn the lower views and then learn the faults in those lower views. And then you will really see the specialness, the uniqueness of the prasangika view. Yeah. I guess it's like, you know, if you start out uh, with chocolate, with really good chocolate cake, and that's the, your first experience with chocolate cake, you know, then later on when you eat the other stuff, you just don't pay any attention to it, and you don't, you know really learn how to make good chocolate cake because you just know that's bad, don't do it that way. But if you start out with the bad one and then you gradually improve and you learn, no, you don't put, uh, you know, chili pepper in your chocolate cake, you don't put this, you, and that, then you learn how to do it properly, you really appreciate your good way of doing it. So that is a very rough example, but... I, I hope you understand what I'm getting at, okay? Because we tend sometimes just to say, well, why do we have to study this? these other tenant systems? Just tell me the one right view now, okay? But uh, part of our whole experience is learning how to think. And how do we learn how to think? By studying these different systems and then checking the views out and seeing if they're reasonable or not. Okay, so now, page 92, auxiliary afflictions. So in the Sanskrit tradition, the compendium of knowledge, 
uh, so that's a Sangha's text, presents 20 auxiliary afflictions that disturb the mind. These are called auxiliary because they are close to or related to the root afflictions and are classified according to the root afflictions with which they are associated. Okay. And the footnote here says, the treasury of knowledge, Vasubandhu's text, contains two other categories of defilements that overlap with these 20. So uh, the 10 full entanglements, yeah, are uh, one to two. The lack of integrity and consideration for others interfere with elect, uh, uh, ethical conduct, which is the third and fourth. No. Yeah. Yeah, the, thir the third or fourth. And um, and then jealousy, being um, mentally upset by another's success and miserliness, possessiveness that opposes giving dharma, possessions and skills. Okay, that's all a definition of jealousy. Those are all in, uh, inconsistent with benefiting others. I'm sorry, I'm not getting this. The full entanglements are one to two. Let's skip this for right now. <laughs> we'll skip Vasubandhu's presentation of the auxiliary for right now, and we'll figure that out a little bit later. Yeah, because the numbering is, is not real clear. Okay. So in, within the auxiliary afflictions, we have the afflictions, the one auxiliary afflictions derived from anger, those derived from attachment, those derived from ignorance, those derived from both attachment and ignorance, those derived from ignorance, anger, and attachment. Okay. So that's where we get the, those 20. They're subdivided into those uh, subsections, okay? And then we'll, from there, we'll go into the Pali tradition, which lists 16 auxiliary afflictions, which has the same, uh, yeah, it's the same name in Pali as auxiliary afflictions are, the name in Sanskrit. And uh, these are also said to be offshoots of the three root afflictions, but they aren't categorized like the auxiliary afflictions in the Sanskrit tradition are categorized as being under specific root afflictions. Okay, is that clear? Okay, so afflictions derived from anger. So as we go through these, you can see how these are related to anger. So remember, you know, anger is based on exaggerating the bad qualities of someone or something and then wanting to get away from it or clobber or destroy it, you know, clobber it. So the first one under this is wrath, which is sometimes uh, translated as belligerence. So that's a mental factor that due to an increase of anger, 
So you start out with anger and it gets really intense. Yeah, it's a thoroughly malicious state of mind wishing to cause immediate harm. So this isn't just irritation. It's not just annoyance. It's like I can't hold myself back. I've got to, you know, harm whatever it is that is disturbing me. Okay? So this is likely to be one that is present before, you know, before you strike somebody, before you uh, fall into a rage and yell and scream and, you know, kind of lose control. Um, the Sanskrit word krodha, yeah, is also the term that is used to describe the wrathful deities. You know, Mahakrodha, great wrath, yeah. The wrathful deities are not wrathful towards sentient beings. They are wrathful towards our, our afflictions. Okay? So when you do a practice of a wrathful deity, yeah, you are showing your, your intense dislike of the afflictions and your intense willingness to destroy the afflictions. And these practices all, you know, get you in touch with the strength of your anger. Yeah. Yeah, because you're visualizing, you know, these wrathful deities. And, and uh, you know, you don't visualize Yamataka and, uh, you know, and then you just dream of little hearts, you know, pink hearts floating in the sky. No, he's like, you know, fire and intense noise and, you know, this huge guy. And yeah, so it, it gets us in touch with the affliction, but it also helps us put that energy towards destroying the afflictions, not towards harming other sentient beings. Okay, resentment is also translated as grudge-holding or vengeance. Okay, to me in English, grudge-holding and resentment are a little bit different. Yeah, but I can also see how they're similar. Let's look at the definition, okay? So resentment is a mental factor that holds firmly onto the fact that in the past we were harmed by a particular person and wishes to retaliate. That sounds like grudge-holding and vengeance, doesn't it? Resentment, maybe resentment comes prior to the grudge-holding and vengeance. You know, you resent what that somebody got some favor. You resent how they treated you but you're not quite at the point of wanting to take revenge. Yeah, so maybe resentment starts out like that. It intensifies, then we want to take revenge. In English, we have many different words for these kind of afflictions, yeah. <laughs> the third one is spite, yeah. 
So it's a mental factor that is preceded by wrath or resentment. Okay? It's an outcome of malice. Okay? So malice is thinking about how we want to retaliate. And it motivates us to speak harsh words in response to unpleasant words said by others. So spite is particularly the motivation particular or the particular motivation for harsh speech. Yeah. We usually think of, of spite as as a verbal one. Do you think of spite as more verbal than physical? Yeah. So okay, but it's preceded by wrath or resentment. Yeah. And so with wrath and resentment, you know, you want to cause immediate harm. You want to take revenge. So then spite comes in and then you tell somebody off. Yeah? You ever had that in your mind? Yeah? You ever had one of those good, juicy fights, usually with somebody you really care a lot about? Yeah, Uh, one of those big fights where you'd say all these horrible things to somebody. Yeah, you ever done that? Oh, some of you look so innocent. So malice, is that um, wrath here? Outcome of malice? Yeah, malice, um, if they're using it like it's used in the Ten Non-Virtues, that's when you're really ruminating about attack, how to attack somebody. Okay. And for resentment, I was thinking that if you're holding on to something, you can't but help but want to harm them in some way, like even just not talking to them. So that's where the vengeance comes in. It's like it's inevitable that you're going to do something that's yeah. not so kind. Well, it may stand, start out mild, But the more we think about what that person said to us, the more we think about what they did to us, the stronger the resentment becomes. And we can see it in our own experience. You know, instead of cultivating compassion, we cultivate resentment. And we cultivate wrath. Yeah, and then we just become so, I am totally fed up, I cannot stand this anymore, you know, and I, I'm i just, you know, going to throw something at somebody, I'm going to go yell and scream at them, I'm, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. So it happens, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. And online it says it seems like jealousy would come before spite. Um, these ones are not in order of how we generate them. Okay, they're just these are all ones that are um, come from anger. It's not they're not in a specific order of how you gen of how you uh, generate them. Okay. Let's go on to jealousy here. So, jealousy. 
is a mental factor that out of attachment, so attachment is involved in jealousy, we're attached to respect, material gain, getting good opportunities for ourselves. Okay? So we're attached to that. And as a result, we are unable to bear the good qualities, possessions, opportunities, or virtue of others. Yeah? They have something that I don't have. And what they have is something I want. And I cannot endure that they have it, and I don't. So it often leads us to try and destroy somebody else's, um, you know, to destroy their, their reputation, to destroy their possessions, to destroy their relationships, to destroy or, you know, make their good qualities look insufficient to interfere with them having good opportunities or to interfere with them creating virtue because we can't stand that they have a better situation than we do. Yeah? You ever felt that way? Yeah? It's really, you know, good. As we read these, yeah... Don't think I don't have those. Yeah. That's arrogance. That's arrogance, exactly. If you think I don't have these, then, you know, you're putting yourself as above all the other sentient beings who have 84,000 afflictions. Yeah. And it also indicates that you're not very aware of what's going on in your own mind. (laughs) So it doesn't mean that you have all of these intensely. Different people have different ones that are more powerful than others. But we do have these. And given the right conditions, all of these mental factors will surge in our mind and easily lead to expressing things verbally or physically. That's why we're studying this, because it's giving us some tools with which to look at what goes on in our mind. Because lots of times we don't know the words to describe what we're feeling. Yeah, there's some intense emotion but we don't know what the word is for it. And we're not even sure what it's thinking. But when we look at these, it gives us something. We could say, oh, is this describing what I'm thinking at this moment and how I'm looking at the situation? Is this describing what I want to do? And so it helps us identify things in our own mind. Yeah. So it's not a list by which to criticize yourself. And it's not a list by which to point out other people's faults. It's a list by which that will help us get to know ourselves and then learn how to pl- apply the antidotes 
to these mental factors so that we don't create negative karma, so that we don't harm others, so that we don't send ourselves to the lower realms. Okay? So this is like a big warning system. Learning this is a warning system of like, be careful when these mental states arise in your mind. Don't feed them. Don't let them just sit there and play. So with jealousy, it's, it's good to, to think, you know, who am I jealous of and for what? And uh, Shantideva reminds us in chapter 8 that we may be jealous of someone and think I should have this and not them and just try and destroy their virtue, reputation, relationship, whatever it is. But he points out that even if we destroy what they have, it doesn't mean we're going to get it. Okay? Like, even if I'm, I'm, if I'm jealous, let's say, of somebody's um, uh, reputation, they get praised a lot, they have a very good reputation, People don't criticize them so much, and I feel like everybody picks on me, and they don't notice my good qualities, and they put me down, and I really, you know, I'm jealous of that person, and I resent that they have that, that you know, goodness or those opportunities. Well, even if we interfere with them having those opportunities or or whatever, it doesn't mean we're going to get them. <laughs> yeah. And you find in relationships, sometimes people are so jealous. You know, you looked at somebody else, you talked with somebody else, you know, you can't do that. Well, you know, even you prevent somebody from doing that, it doesn't mean they're going to like you any better. Okay. Okay, then the fifth one is cruelty. So this is vihimsa. Ahimsa is nonviolence. What Gandhi and his holiness practice, vihimsa is violence or cruelty. Okay. So this is a mental factor that with a malicious intention, so you want to harm somebody. It's a malicious intention that lacks any compassion or kindness, desires to harm, belittle, or disregard others. Yeah. So this we find a lot uh, when there's prejudice against different groups of people. Yeah. We create a stereotype. We brand everybody that same way. And then we cut them out of our compassion. Yeah. And just, you know, they are, what, whatever group they are, to, are belong to, they're harmful, and I have every right to belittle them and harm them and disregard them. So it is usually directed towards those we consider inferior to ourselves. I just read of a doctor who 50 years ago uh, 
after he graduated college, applied to Emory University to go to medical school. And Emory, within a week, re replied to his uh, application with, we're sorry, uh, you are not eligible to apply here because you belong to the Negro race. Yeah, this was in 1960, during my lifetime, you know? So, why was this in the paper? Because they decided they needed to apologize to him. 50 years later. So he actually went to Loyola, Loyola and went to another school and became a doctor uh, and practiced for many, many years. And Emory wanted to give him an honorary degree. And he said, I don't need an honorary degree. I'm 80 years old now. But I would like to tell my story because my story could be helpful for other people to hear. Okay, so when we look at racism, misogyny, anti-immigrant, you know, any of these kinds of things, the whole thing with LGBTQ, you know, et cetera, um, it's all based on forming a stereotype and then this mental factor of vihimsa or cruelty, yeah? bundling people together, and this is what they are worthy of. Yeah? Horrible mental factor, isn't it? Uh-huh. Uh -huh. uh, as humans, we tend to see animals as inferior because they're in a different mm -hmm. form, and so much cruelty is inflicted yeah. on animals. Um, I, I look at suffering animals one time on the internet just for pictures, and I wasn't even thinking what would come up, and it was mostly experiments. Yeah, it was for all sorts of things, yeah. But not seeing that animals experience suffering and happiness, too. Okay, so those are the ones that are derived from anger. That's enough, isn't it? When you, when you think about these, you know, and you think about what goes on in the world, you can trace a lot of what goes on in the world to these, those ones right there. Mm -hmm. I find myself being jealous of things that when I just stop just one second to question it, I'm like, I don't really want that. It's like such a habit. Or, you know, I, I, it's mostly I assume that other person is happy, and I think that's what I really want. But yeah. like if they're getting praise, I mean, if I stop and think, I know that won't make me happy. Yeah. So it's yeah. strange to see Yeah, it. it is. I mean, that's the thing with our afflictions, is they aren't very reasonable. They aren't based on clear thinking. They're based on exaggeration and muddle-mindedness. Yeah? So we get jealous of somebody, and then it's like, well, would I really want to live their life? No, I, you know, so. Okay, then the, the next section here are the afflictions derived from attachment. So here we begin with miserliness. So it is a mental factor 
that out of attachment to respect and material gain, yeah, we see this phrase, attachment to respect and material gain. It comes up in a lot of different situations. Yeah, keep track of those situations in your mind because it's it's interesting. So out of attachment to respect and material gain firmly holds on to our possessions with no wish at all to give them away. Okay, so miserliness, stinginess. Yeah, so we're attached to what we have and we do not want to share it. And so there's fear often involved in miserliness, that if I give it away, then I won't have it. So, you know, when I told you about the the house I stayed in where the basement was filled with cardboard moving boxes that couldn't be given away, you know, and my little collection of different little containers that I might need when I travel, because I do need them, but I have started recycling many of them too. You know, so it can be something like that or attachment to to money, you know, attachment to our books, attachment to anything, and we do not want to share it. Yeah. And we'll think of all sorts of ways to not share. Yeah. Even your the gloves you use to work outdoors, it's like, I have new gloves. You know, somebody else has ripped up gloves. But I have two pairs of new gloves, and I don't want to give one of them away because then I won't have a replacement for when my other good ones break. Yeah? I mean, it's very interesting to watch what we get miserly about. Yeah? And how, you know, we will have so much empathy and compassion for people who are hungry or poor when we read about their situation. But when somebody's in front of us and they want, uh, you know, and we have a protein bar and they're hungry, we're not going to even give them a protein bar. Yeah, this is my protein bar. And I'm gonna I'm gonna need it later, you know, or whatever it is. Yeah, we don't want to give. Yeah, you ever have that? I can tell you so many stories about that. Oh my goodness, horrible stories. I have a lot of regret about that. Okay, next one. So, so these things also help you to learn what you need to purify. Because as you think back upon times when you were really miserly or really full of resentment, whatever it is, then you see, okay, I have to do some purification about how I, my uh, mental, verbal, and physical actions during that situation. I wanted to ask if miserliness only um, revolves around material possessions because like when we watched that documentary about the women earning the right to vote right and the fear of giving power <laughs> to a, uh, another group you know it's yeah. like so entrenched the idea that if you give them some rights uh, somehow you are going to be threatened the 
everything is going to fall apart. And that happens in so many of these social change yeah. situations. Yeah. Yeah. So much of, of, you know, social progress is based on convincing people who have power or possessions or reputation to give it up. Yeah. So I don't know, can you be miser, if miserliness is, can be applied, you know, it's, it's the same principle, whether, it is technically applied to power or not, but it's the same principle of not wanting to share. You know, I have a good situation or good, you know, uh, status. I think it would apply because uh, respect and material gain. You know, if the women, if women have vote, they have the vote, then the men are losing respect, and respect means power. I think it was so interesting, you know, why don't the women need the vote? Because the men vote for them, and they just follow their husband. So they don't need a separate to separately vote. That was, you know, the reason. And besides that, they're too dumb to think about these things. And besides that, yeah, if women have the power to vote, then they might want to hold office. Okay, and Thomas Jefferson even said, commented about that, and he said, you know, many people, including myself, are not ready for that to happen. <laughs> you know, this is the guy who wrote, you know, what did he, did he write the Declaration of Independence, or, yeah, yeah, so all men, he really meant men. You know, they always told me in school when I asked, why is it men? They said, oh, it means everybody. No, he wasn't talking about everybody. He was talking about men. White men, yes. Yeah, and white, white men with property. Yeah, because white men who didn't have property were also weren't allowed to vote. Yeah. But it's interesting what we're taught in school is not actually what the Founding Fathers meant. Yeah. Our dear Founding Fathers. <laughs> yeah, Betsy Ross for president. <laughs> She's the only one we hear about, isn't it? With the revolutionary... Huh? Yeah. No, I, I read that book. Don't don't know much about history that Venerable Soltrim gave me, and in it it says that the whole idea of Betsy Ross sewing the flag is a myth that her family made up. <laughs> Later, she didn't actually do it. She didn't sew the flag. I don't think so. She was. I mean, she was associated with that political elite, but she did not actually sew the flag. Oh, so who sewed the flag? I don't know. I'll go look it up and send it to you. Oh, my goodness. Our one heroine in the whole war, you know, she now doesn't have any credit. So that was a conspiracy theory, huh? <laughs> Propaganda. Oh, I see. The kids wanted their mom to be famous. Okay. Still, still is probably a woman because Thomas Jefferson didn't so. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know how to. <laughs>
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> then um, the third one is restlessness. Yeah. So this one. Oh, haughtiness. Oh, sorry, I forgot to be haughty. Um, haughtiness. This sometimes is uh, translated as complacency. And at first I thought, haughtiness and complacency, the same thing? They seem very different. But listen, you know, to what, what it is. It's a mental factor that being attentive to the good fortune we possess produces a false sense of confidence or security that leads to complacency. Okay? So haughtiness, yeah, we're attentive, you know, to our good fortune. We get, we become full of ourselves, you know. So this one is related also, I think, to arrogance a bit. You know, I'm better than other people. I, you know, this false sense of self-confidence or false sense of security. So you're haughty, you know, your nose is in the air a bit. And it leads to being complacent. I have this advantage and I'm always going to have it. It is my advantage and it belongs to me because I am inherently better, and then we get totally complacent about it and don't try and do anything. Yeah? Yeah? Do you get complacent? Yeah? In our Dharma practice, we get complacent very easily, I think. Yeah? I, oh, my mind's doing pretty well, you know? There's some improvement, so... Let's just coast along, you know, so we forget about death. Okay, then restlessness. So this is also translated as agitation and excitement. When we uh, study about how to generate uh, serenity, you know, or meditative concentration, um, one of the hindrances that Maitreya Buddha speaks about is usually translated as agitation or excitement in the uh, Pali tradition, and also the the this is found in the in the uh, Sanskrit tradition. It's usually translated as restlessness. So in English, you know, restlessness, agitation. How do they sound to you? To me, excitement is is quite different than being. Restless or agitated. You know, excitement is like, oh, something's good gonna come. Yeah. But restlessness, excitement. Fidgety. Huh? Fidgety. Fidgety, but this is talking about mental fidgety. Okay. Excitement seems to have anticipation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is a mental factor that through the force of attachment does not allow the mind to rest slow, solely on a virtuous object, but scatters it here and there to many other objects. Yeah. So it could, it could have that sense of anticipation like, 
oh, I'm focusing on the Buddha, but I'm getting really bored with it. So let's think about, uh, uh, you know, something else. And you come up with anything. Yeah. I want carpeting like this. <laughs> Don't get carpeting like this. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. So... It, res- restlessness, agitation, the mind won't quiet down. Okay. So it, it is uh, pushed by attachment. So to that extent, it's probably looking for something nice to get distracted about. Okay. and uh, But it really affects our meditation. Yeah. Okay. So those three have to do with attachment. Then there's a whole set that of afflictions derived from ignorance. So the first one here is concealment. And it is a mental factor that wishes to hide our faults whenever another person with a benevolent intention, free from attachment, confusion, hatred, or fear, talks about such faults. Okay, so... You know, when we uh, do our confession, the Sangha, uh, every two weeks, yeah, I confess and repent these uh, offenses. I will not conceal them. Confession and repentance bring peace and harmony. Concealment means sorrow. So this is the concealment, okay? So in that particular situation, we committed an offense, we transgressed one of our precepts, and we don't want to admit it. Yeah? So we hide it. We hide our fault whenever another person with benevolent intention, yeah, so somebody who wants to help us, like when we're doing posada and we're trying to purify, whoever it is, we requested them to be the amends attester to our to witness our confession and repentance. So they're there to help us. They're the benevolent person, uh, the person with a benevolent intention, but we don't want to admit what we did. Because it was just little, so it's not really worth admitting. Or they're going to think really bad of me if I say this. If I say I did this, I will feel so embarrassed because, I, you know, I know I shouldn't have done it. Now all these people will know I did it. And, you know, I just can't stand the idea of people thinking about me like that. You ever have that? Yeah? So I just... I'm not concealing it. Yeah, I'm not concealing it. I'm just... Because it was such a little thing, you know, I don't really need to say it. Yeah, or it was kind of a big thing, but I don't really trust that this person has a good motivation towards me. Basically, I don't want anybody to know it because I might get scolded and my reputation might get harmed. And I don't want to get scolded for acting in a stupid way. 
Yeah. I don't want anybody to know I did something stupid. Even at the time, though at the time I thought it was great. Or sometimes even at the time I knew it was stupid, but I did it anyway. Okay. Okay. So another person with a, with a benevolent intention, free of attachment, confusion, hatred, or fear. It's translated slightly different in the Prati Moksha. What is it? Uh, you accuse the Sangha of having partiality, hatred, fear, and ignorance, isn't it? Partiality, hatred, fear, and ignorance. So uh, in the Posada, we translate that term as partiality. Here it's translated as attachment. It's kind of, it comes to the same point. You're attached to something. Yeah. And so you're partial. You're partial or you're attached. Confusion means ignorance. Hatred, fear, same translations. Okay. So this is an interesting one to, to, uh, to look at, you know, because sometimes it's like, oh, well, I did that. Um, I can confess it to so-and-so because I trust them. They're my friend. But I don't want to confess it to that one because that one is going to use it against me. So we don't trust the goodwill of our fellow monastics. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and we don't want to ad- admit because it might harm our reputation and our standing. Okay, next one derived from ignorance. So you can see concealment derived from ignorance, you know, cloud, obscuration, you you can't see clearly. Second one, lethargy, which is sometimes translated as dullness. Okay, So it is a mental factor that having caused the mind to become dull and thereby insensitive does not comprehend its object clearly. So this comes a lot uh, when you're trying to develop concentration. It also can come in the middle of teachings, in the middle of pujas. Uh, Yeah, when you're driving, it can, uh, you know... It, it doesn't come when something exciting uh, that involves your attachment or your anger is happening. Yeah. But otherwise, yes, lethargy, dullness, a uh, mental factor having caused the mind to become dull. Yeah. Do you ever get that one when you're chanting? Yeah, you're chanting, but... And you know the words, so it's just, you know, blah, 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 you know. But you're, you can watch your mind slowly start to go off as your head goes down. <laughs> Maybe that's why they had to ring the bell <laughs> in the middle of chanting to wake everybody up. Okay. So, you know, it's a, it's a mental and physical, you know, dullness. Um, makes the mind dull and insensitive. 
we don't understand the object clearly. And then eventually it starts affecting the body too. We become lethargic. Yeah, it's like, do I really have to go to meditation? <laughs> uh, I don't feel well. Yeah, I don't feel well. I, 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 I don't have to go to puja. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Next one. This one's also a good friend. Laziness. Okay, so laziness is a mental factor that having firmly grasped an object offering temporary happiness either does not wish to do anything constructive or although wishing to is weak-minded. Laziness leads to excessive sleep, involvement with meaningless activities, and discouragement. Okay, so it's a mental factor that having firmly grasped an object offering temporary happiness. Okay, so it starts out with, you know, chocolate cake, you know, or whatever it is, going for a walk with somebody you like, or going to the movies, or doing whatever it is, you know, that you're attached to, okay? Starts out that way with, a, you're holding on to an object that offers temporary a, a happiness, and then you don't, you either don't wish to do anything constructive, Okay, because you're kind of so nice in your, in your happiness, you know? You're so nice. So either you don't do anything constructive, or that thought comes, you know, oh, I should get out of bed, but it's so comfortable lying here. Yeah, uh, so... I'll, or, you know, wishing to do something constructive is weak-minded. You know, you roll over, turn the alarm clock off, go back to sleep, okay? So laziness leads to excessive sleep, involvement with meaningless activities, and discouragement. Where do you find those three things? Where, there are obstacles to joyous effort. And they're all forms of laziness. So in English, we usually think, you know, excessive sleep is laziness. Yeah. But also involvement in meaningless activities, which means you're running around being the busiest of the busy, going here and there and doing this and that, totally involved in samsara, grasping everything you can get. And you say, well, how is that lazy? It's laziness because you're lazy in terms of practicing the Dharma. You'd much rather, you know, go around and do this and that and the other thing because, you know, it's like practicing the Dharma. If I'm going to sit and study, that means I have to concentrate. If I sit and meditate, I have to deal with my wandering mind, you know. Uh, if, I, if I prostrate, then my knees hurt, my back hurt. So I'll just be busy 
I am so busy running around, and I got to do this, and I got to do that, and okay? So that's considered laziness because you're not practicing when you could, okay? And it also leads to discouragement. So discouragement is a kind of laziness too because when we discourage ourselves, then we don't want to do anything. So in discouragement, you know, what is discouragement? Putting ourselves down, self-criticism, blaming ourselves for everything, Yeah, no self-confidence. All of that is laziness because, you know, as soon as I tell myself I'm worthless, I'm incompetent, I'm stupid, I'm not as good as other people, then we don't even try. So that's being lazy, isn't it? Yeah, we're not even trying to do anything meaningful or constructive. We just give up on ourselves. Yeah. So those last two, being extremely busy and putting ourselves down, those are two things that, at least in English, we don't consider being lazy. But they are. Yeah, they are. Okay. Let's pause here. Are there questions? Um, in terms of these afflictions, I was thinking that um, you can't purify afflictions, like when we do Vajrasafa or 35 mm-hmm. Buddha practice. But that's often what comes to my mind about something I regret is thoughts about these, you know, thoughts of these afflictions. Mm-hmm. So can we actually purify those? Um Yeah, this question has come up before. I think when we say purify afflictions, what we're meaning is uh, that mental state, what that was really involved in that affliction, such that it motivated our actions. You know, usually we usually talk about, uh, yeah, usually we usually... uh, (laughs) Yeah, and often we usually frequently... Um, (laughs) yeah, talk about, uh, like covetousness or malice or wrong views being the mental actions. But it could be, you know, any of the, uh, afflictions that you really sink your mind into such that it motivates your actions. Yeah, such, yeah. It probably, they would say it, uh, those can fall roughly into the mental karmas of covetousness, malice, and, and wrong views. But, you know, it seems, this is just my guess, you know, because you realize something that you did that you really regret that action, but you regret the motivation and the affliction that motivated you to do it. Okay? So, it seems to me in that case, that's part, you know, it's part of the action. It's when we talk about the intention, that is part of the intention, and the intention also needs to be purified. Okay? But usually the thing is we talk about abandoning um, afflictions. 
Yeah, but that comes much later on the path, abandoning the afflictions. So, uh, you know, it, you could say we're, we purify the afflictions. Maybe we just make the seed of the affliction a little less strong, something like that. Yes, I'm specifically talking about when I don't do a verbal or physical action motivated by it, mm -hmm. but I just have like a lot of jealousy and I'm just ruminating on the jealousy. Mm -hmm. So that it, would be maybe fall that, under covetousness? Uh, or it might be under malice because jealousy is under anger. Yeah. So it could be under that and then, yeah. You just stay stuck in your pit of jealousy. Oh, it's such a nice pit, isn't it? Yeah. You decorate it. Yeah. It's on the walls. Is everything that you're jealous of other people about. So you make yourself look at it all the time and torment yourself. <laughs> yes. Um, I haven't seen anywhere uh, fear, anxiety, sadness, under which category is that yeah. to be found? Or how? Well, well if, if you read ahead. Oh, I haven't so much read, uh, but yeah. yeah. Um, so fear will come, anxiety is mm. going to come, worry is going to come. Yeah. Sadness is, I think, more of an unpleasant feeling. So it would belong in the second aggregate. Because the Second aggregate is feelings. And when we talk about feelings in Buddhism, we're talking about pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings. So sadness would be an unpleasant feeling. Yeah? Yeah. It can be, uh, you know, what makes you sad. It could be jealousy. It could be attachment. It could be any kind of thing like that. So this, what we have here, is not an exhaustive list. There's 84,000, yeah? So we're just skimming the surface. And this came up in one of the very early Mind and Life conferences. Because people, we talk about it in Buddhist psychology, but it's actually very different than regular psychology, the, the mental elements that are pointed out. And His Holiness said, that's because what is pointed out in low rig, also when we talk about the virtuous mental factors, we're pointing out virtuous mental factors that are conducive for attaining spiritual realizations and afflictive mental factors that prevent us from attaining spiritual realizations. Whereas in regular psychology, when they list different mental factors, it's usually in terms of what makes you feel happy and what makes you feel not happy. Okay? But in Buddhism, there can be virtuous mental factors that make you feel not very happy at that moment. And there can be non-virtuous mental factors that make you feel happy. So the list here is very much geared for describing what we need to practice, uh, what we need to cultivate, and what we need to abandon in terms of different mental factors if we want to attain uh, awakening. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that is helpful. And another question I have is how sometimes um, conservation uh, conversations here arise at Derby. Um, are sort of guess how to um, determine uh, when are you lazy and when you really need rest. How do you um, figure that out for yourself? <laughs> well, how do I figure that out? <laughs> yeah, when when I am falling asleep, I know I need rest. Yeah. When I've been working hard and my mind is tired, I know I need to take a walk or I need, you know, something else to do. When I'm being lazy, I, there's a certain feeling in my mind because I know I'm pro procrastinating and finding all sorts of other things to do that are important because I have a whole pile of emails that people sent me telling me that they're in, that. I have to do these things because they're waiting for the reply. But it's a very good excuse for not working on the book. And I know it's an excuse. But it's a good excuse because all these people write me, and if I don't write back, then they write again. <laughs> and my list of unanswered emails just grows. And I can't stand a list of unanswered emails because it hangs over my head like, you've got to do this. Yeah, so then I do it, and then I don't always work on what's important. I hope that makes you all feel guilty, yeah, for sending me emails. Because the majority of my emails come from people in this community, so feel guilty. Yeah. Then you can purify the guilt. Yeah. <laughs> the best way to purify guilt is don't ask when you don't need to know. <laughs> Or try and solve the problem yourself. But don't go too far. Because often people don't tell me what I need to know, and they don't check with me about things that I need to have, they need my opinion on. So you're supposed to be able to read my mind and figure it all out, okay? Venerable Jigme. <laughs> The expression on your face. <laughs> But I think you get those emails too, don't you? Yeah? Do you feel guilty when they stack up in your inbox? No. <laughs> That's the difference between her and me. <laughs> I should just let them sit there. Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, some emails people write, I'm really glad they wrote. I mean, they have something that they really need help with, and I'm quite glad they write. And then, and then, okay. <laughs> so we're going to stop here. Yeah, we'll pause with laziness. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Do you find this helpful for looking at your mind? Yeah.
So it's really good, you know, go through and contemplate these and give, you know, make examples of when you have these in your mind and then think about what are the antidotes to them and how can you frame the situation in a different way so that these auxiliary afflictions don't just run the show. Because they're pretty bossy. Yeah, that's the thing with afflictions, you know. They're bossy, they're determined, they don't let up. Yeah, you try and conquer them once, they come right back stronger. Yeah. So we have to be prepared. <laughs>